please take your Bibles and open them to Habakkuk, or you can use the insert. I have several passages there that I will read to begin this morning's sermon. Three chapters make up the book of Habakkuk. We have taken three weeks already to work through all of those verses and see what unfolds in this wonderful book, this uh, minor prophet as as it is referred to. This is also uh, an occasion for us on this week to double back and consider what we've learned from the book and then specifically see it applied in the last verses where the prophet says, despite all this difficulty, all this trial that's coming upon him and the people of Israel, the faithful of Israel, going to suffer for the sins of the the greater group, all this is coming upon them through Babylon. Yet he says, Nevertheless, I will rejoice in the Lord. What could make Habakkuk say at the end of all of this, I will rejoice in the Lord? We would do well to examine that one more time, just a little more closely through these last few verses. So this morning, I will read the verses that are listed on the insert as a way to remind us of the story that's unfolded and then end with those last verses and then go from there to see how it is that the prophet could say something like, I will rejoice in the Lord, despite all that he describes. So hear God's word one more time from Habakkuk. I'll read just some selected verses that you have there before you. Starting at verse 2, the prophet says, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? He's crying out to God to stop the rebellion of the nation of Judah. For the sake of the faithful in Judah, please, Lord, stop this. When will you listen? The Lord responds in verse 5 of chapter 1. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. The Lord, of course, was right. Habakkuk was shocked to hear his plan. He was going to stop the rebellion of Judah. But he was going to do it by raising a more rebellious nation, Babylon. And they would come and crush Judah. Of course, eventually Babylon would be crushed. But God reveals this plan. He's going to stop the rebellion. But it won't be the way you imagine. It's going to be the way his sovereign will determines. Habakkuk appeals, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. He recognizes the plan of the Lord. He repeats it as a form of appeal. But the Lord's determined judgment comes in verses 2 through 4 of chapter 2, with verse 4 being probably the most important verse in this book. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by his faith, or The righteous will go on living by their faith, more literally translated. So those who are puffed up 
and arrogant, they are not right. And they will reap this judgment in an ultimate sense. But for those who are humble, the righteous, those who are justified before the they go on trusting in God's promises. So trust in God's promises is the message of God to Habakkuk and all the faithful who will listen. Verse 14, the second most important verse, it's one of the promises, one of the clear promises that we are to trust, that Habakkuk is to trust, no matter what comes immediately. Verse 14 of Habakkuk 2, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Yes, this immediate Conquering this invasion from Babylon will happen. It will be trying. It will be agony. There will be misery. But make no mistake, the ultimate answer is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just the same way the waters cover the sea. Now we come to the last verses after Habakkuk has been given this this difficult vision of what's about to happen and all the trials and tribulations that Judah will undergo. And even more importantly, the faithful of God, those who do trust in Yahweh, they are justified by faith. They too, though, will have to deal with what happens in Judah. Habakkuk 3, verse 16, the second part down to verse 19 that closes the book. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father in heaven, as we finish this study of Habakkuk, please grant us the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we might understand and apply the message of this text to our lives. Lord, we are in need of wisdom and knowledge, and your word grants this through the ministry of your Spirit. We thank you for this. We pray for this. Through Christ, amen. There's a lot here to unpack when we consider the truths that are revealed in the book of Habakkuk. There are truths that are specific to every believer who can appreciate what the message is. There are truths that are applicable to the whole of the church, God's people living in any era. Timeless, very relevant what we have before us. Very counterculture. It's even counter-popular Christian thinking. You know, one of the ways you can tell what people believe in the church or among Christians is by what they sing, um, their hymns and their songs. And there was a song early on that I heard sung in a church when I first became a believer, started going, never heard hymns before I was in my mid-teens, and I went to a church and they sang many of the rich hymns of the faith, and I can see the depth of what was being spoken in those hymns, and I grabbed hold of a lot of that and said, yes, that that." mirrors what the scripture seems to be saying and what my experience is. They put them together and we sing them. But there's one song that was sung regularly. You'll never hear it sung here as long as I'm doing the liturgy and I'm apologize ahead of time. I know I'll step on a couple toes. But the hymn Trust and Obey has always set me wrong when I think of the truth of scripture and the truth of experience connected to it. Just listen to some of the words. Again, don't be upset. Just hear me out. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but his smile quickly drives it away. 
Not, not really. Not all the time. Sometimes. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Well, I think Habakkuk trusted and obeyed. And I think he was fearful. And I think he shed some tears. But the line that really gets it, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Happy? Now, we experience happiness and gladness and cheerfulness. There are emotions that we experience as believers in relationship to God's blessings. I'm not saying there's no place for emotion. But the way the hymn sets it out, trust and obey, you'll be happy. I don't think that can be evidenced in the life of Habakkuk. I doubt it could be evidenced in your life over the, hall, the long haul of it. Habakkuk trusted in God, but he exuded many sighs, shed many tears, and at some points struggled with fears. Not sure how much happiness or how Habakkuk would describe his life as being happy, if he ever would. The life of a believer in this fallen world may be riddled with burdensome trials. And the experience of happiness on a regular basis may not be the case. It may be very rare. But there's something else being spoken of here, and we see it throughout Scripture, and it's something much deeper. It's joy. There's something about joy that makes Habakkuk say, I will rejoice in the Lord even despite all that was about to happen. Early in my walk as a believer, I became acquainted with a woman who was only in her 30s when her husband was killed in a car accident. I remember watching how the church reacted, again, a new believer just observing. She was in deep grief, terrible grief with this sense of loss. It was very honest, very visceral seeing her go through this process. Yet, in the midst of it, she very genuinely thanked God for the blessing that she had of just a few years of marriage. A few years later, I remember as a young college student hearing the testimony of Robertson McQuilkin, whose wife of 20 years began suffering from Alzheimer's. Now, the thing with his situation, he had just resigned as the president of Columbia Bible College because he needed to take full-time care of his wife. She had been suffering with it for 10 years. She got to the point where she could not be left alone. So he, for the last 12 years of her, her life, stood by her bedside, basically. Just, just very few times would go to speak for a day or two, but then come right back because she would be fearful without him, even though towards the last few years, she didn't even recognize him. And he spoke with a genuine joy about God calling him to this high calling of caring for his wife, his one flesh union, that he could live out his vows to her. And I I, I sensed it was real what he was saying. And as a young believer, again, how could this be that life comes at him like this? And yet he has this response of joy. He used the word joy to describe his caring for his wife. I traveled to a poor part of the world not too long after college, when I was here. And I worship with believers who own practically nothing. I mean practically nothing. Yet they had this deep and abiding joy in the Lord as they sang and as they worshiped and as they lived, not just when they were in church. I met a lady in West Virginia early on in my time here at Redeemer. We went on a mission trip to Fairmont. This woman, this elderly woman, lived alone in a house that I'm not exaggerating to say was sinking into the basement. Our whole task was to jack the house up and get it to be where it was safe for her to live in it. Yet she was as happy as one could be and better better said, she had this deep-seated joy. Uh, She knew that she was all right in Christ. 
in all of us are thinking, what a situation to live in yet for her, she seemed just fine. The list goes on concerning the people that I've met in these pews even now, some of you, some of your stories, the way that you still draw upon the joy of the Lord given difficult circumstances, heavy situations. People have every outward reason to crumble under the weight of their problems, yet they seem not only to endure but to grow stronger inwardly just as God promises. This is an inward joy now that we're speaking of. This is one of the primary lessons I believe that we learn from Habakkuk when we see what unfolds here. Very simply, to capture it, to bring it all to a summary head, our experience of joy in the Lord and his salvation is not dependent on our immediate circumstances, nor does it mean the same thing as happiness. There's a certain flow to the story of Habakkuk that we see, and it unpacks this reality for us. I want to say it again because it's so important. Our experience of joy in the Lord and his salvation is not dependent on our immediate circumstances, nor does it mean the same thing as happiness. And you see how it unfolds, and I have it in an outline form for you. It starts with this basic rootedness in the salvation that is ours in God, his promise to be our Savior, to give us salvation. And that means eternal life. That means that we're brought from our place of deadness and judgment into our place of life and abundance that will go on forever. That's the promise of salvation, the God of my salvation. That's the starting point for the believer. This is what helps us uh, reach this place of endurance even though circumstances are difficult. Not always happiness, but a, an underlying joy about what's ultimate. Second, we see in the story of Habakkuk, the trials and tribulations are absolutely part of this life and in this fallen world. Living in this fallen world will mean trials and tribulations. They have purpose. We understand their meaning to some degree, not specifics this side of glory, but they will be part of your life. It doesn't mean you're out of God's will in some fashion or God's upset with you because you're going through trials and tribulations. It's part of living in a fallen situation. But finally, we see evidenced in the last verses of the book, that we can still have true joy despite the trials and the tribulations of this life. It seems to me that this is not a little matter that we're looking at here. It seems to me like it colors every aspect of our lives, in the lives of those who we love and we interact with. Let's walk through this progression as I just mentioned it. First of all, look at verse 18, and you'll see how Habakkuk is now at this point in the book, gone through this process, understands what the will of God is, knows how difficult it will be, but he says something really uh, resounding in verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Though all that be taken away, though an invasion will happen, there'll be great pain, there'll be suffering, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Why? I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He's not just saying, you know what, I'm just going to be positive no matter what. He's saying, I will take joy because I am rooted in God. I am in union with God. The righteous will live by faith. I trust in the promises of God. So therefore, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Salvation belongs to those who trust in God's promises, ultimately in the person of Christ. Habakkuk chooses to rejoice in the Lord for good reason. He's the God of salvation he's trusting in. He's not trusting in someone who's just some uh, 
elderly grandfather figure who might be able to deliver. No, this is the God of my salvation, so I can take actual joy there. There's rootedness there. There's a foundation there. He's not rejoicing in one who is powerless or impotent, some dead idol. He has joy in the God of his salvation. Verse 19, God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. He gives me, he gives me strength. I have stability. I can stand in a high place even though the weather comes against me, all the elements come against me, but just like a deer who can stand on those kinds of places without moving, there I can stand. And I have joy in the God of my salvation. So it's about his salvation being secured, his being completely sure of everything in God that makes him able to take this posture we see revealed as it culminates in the last verses. After all the Lord has revealed to Habakkuk about the current situation and what was coming, Habakkuk's response is to rejoice in the one who was his salvation and his strength. The righteous shall live by his faith. They'll go on living by their faith. Faith in the promises of God, that's where salvation lies. For the believer, you have eternal life through the promises that are yours in Christ and what he has done for you. God promises you the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. This is the foundation for everything else that flows from it. His confidence comes from this salvation, from this knowledge of eternal life. This shades everything that we see now through a different lens, the lens of eternal life, salvation. You know, if you were just to take a survey of Jesus' statements about eternal life, you would recognize it, it absolutely flows through everything he teaches. He's teaching in the Gospel of John, for instance, to believe on him. Why? For eternal life. This message of salvation is so transforming to the life you live now that he is very clear and forceful about it. In John 3.16, God so loved the world, he gave his only son, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Later in the same chapter, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. This is a repeated theme that Jesus comes back to. In John 6, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. The righteous live by faith. Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. Later in John 6, as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever, eternal life. That is what Jesus constantly promises in him. In John 10, verse 10, the thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Before Christ, we're spiritually dead. After coming to know Christ, we are made alive forevermore. This is just a blip that we're living now. Not only are we given life eternally, but our lives are filled with meaning and purpose and abundance now, looking forward to all that is to come. When the people were lamenting the death of their brother Lazarus and Jesus raises him, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is a recurring important theme for Christians that we probably don't spend enough time on. We are going to live forever in Christ. 
And this is the picture of salvation, the God of our salvation. This is the basis for how we are able to live the life that we live now. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In John 17, 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. In Christ, brothers and sisters, we have eternal life. And for the believer, this means that we have all of eternity to look forward to. Paul wrote from this perspective. He says in Romans 6.23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Our life is eternal and it's wrapped up in the person of Christ. It completely shades everything now in a fresh way. 1 Corinthians 15, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have been fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. If you're in Christ, you're in the second Adam, you're made alive. And so now our life takes on a new meaning. Even though outwardly we're wasting away in this short lifespan, inwardly we're being renewed day by day. The view of eternity for the believer is altogether different for everybody else. We have a picture of our future resurrection in Christ, this prototype mentioned in 1 Corinthians. Then when he writes to the Thessalonians, listen to what Paul says, because the people were wondering what happened to their fellow believers who died. He said, don't grieve as those who don't have hope. You have hope in the resurrection. And with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, Paul writes. Then he, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. This view of eternity and salvation course, the great picture, probably the greatest picture is in Revelation. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. We have eternal life through Christ. We have eternal salvation because of our union with Jesus. From the time you are born again, you are alive forevermore. The ultimate truth of our eternal life casts a completely different shade on our life today. Salvation belongs to those who trust in God's promises. And this is the basis for what we read Habakkuk say in verse 18 of Habakkuk 3. I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The God of my salvation. This is the root of everything Habakkuk says. Now, something else we learn that's happening all around Habakkuk is the second point. This is true, what we've just said about salvation. But there are trials and tribulations that will litter the life we live right now on this planet, in this time. Look at verse 16 as he confesses this to be the case. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. He's talking about the fact that the Babylonians will get theirs eventually. Yes, there'll be the hand of judgment against Judah, but they're going to get theirs. I'll wait for it. But notice what he says. They'll come upon the people who invade us. They're going to invade. 
they're going to reap the destruction that the Babylonians reap. Trials are coming. He doesn't deny it. He knows it's true. He knows it's going to be part of what they have to endure. Habakkuk acknowledges that extreme hardship is upon him and Judah. He knows God's justice will be realized, but he also knows that the faithful of God may have to endure some of this, living in the midst of God's judgment. Habakkuk confesses the reality of the trials and tribulations that he is about to experience. And look what they are, verse 17 and 18. Though the fig tree should not blossom, so the occupying uh, oppressor Babylon would take it for themselves or they cut off the, the growing seasons altogether. It wasn't uncommon for an occupying country to demoralize those people who were there by taking away their food and their ability to make food. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. And this is as desperate as it can be. Everything is stripped away from them. Yet, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. He knows his eternal salvation is secure. He also knows that life may have very difficult circumstances to endure. He knows they're coming. There's a clear understanding that troubles will assail in this life. It helps to apply this first point, our eternal life. But our current troubles are still real. You know, there are two kinds of troubles that will assail us, every person here. Uh, the first kind is common to everybody, everyone who lives on earth. It's common because of the fallen condition of us and the world we live in. Sickness, illness, death, all part of this existence. Scarcity of food and shelter this besets many people on the earth. Some of the things that happen to us health-wise or to our well-being is because of our own fault. That's true. But even if you did everything just right, you're still only going to live so long. In fact, you know that the average age is 78. It's 79 and a half for the ladies, 77 and a half for the men, so about 78. For all that we've come up with, that's still pretty much where the average person lives, too. That's a result of living in this fallen world. Accidents occur. There are wars or violence, random ailments, problems beset us. This is true. Everyone will experience some level of this eventually. But there's also something that comes upon Judah in Israel, that which is thrust upon us by God's enemies because we are Christians. We see this happen among God's people in the Old Testament. Then you look at the early church, the first 300 years of Christianity before Constantine makes it legal. You have perpetual persecutions against people who are claiming the name of Christ. Tribulations come upon them. Many of the New Testament authors were writing about those kinds of persecutions that Christians were having to endure. There's also that kind of persecution throughout the history of the church. In fact, for all the people that died in the first 300 years of Christianity since the time Jesus rose again till Constantine, Three times as many have died in the last hundred years claiming the name of Christ, the world across. It could happen to us at some point. Yet, what we have as a response, even though that there are trials and tribulations part of this world, Habakkuk says, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. 
I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Now, I know whenever I talk about trials and tribulations, some will be in the midst of one now and you know exactly what I'm saying. But we also may become overwhelmed with the idea that, but this life is, is pretty long. There's just a lot to endure in this life. And I understand that, but you have to step back for a second and appreciate the fullness of God's promises to us. Now, in the earlier service, because we're outside, I did a bit of an illustration. I wasn't going to try in here, but I'm feeling very, uh, I'm, I'm feeling daring, so I'm going to try it. Outside, it felt like summer camp, and I could do the youth pastor illustration. This may backfire, but I'm going to try it anyways. I'm going to ask Pastor Nathan to help me to illustrate this. Nathan, if you would be so kind as to walk down the middle aisle without clotheslining the communion stuff, that would be great. He's going to go all the way to the, keep going until I tell you to stop. Keep going. Do you look like you want to stop, but don't? Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Whoa, whoa, hold up. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Whoa, hold on. Sorry. Keep going. All right, let's everybody imagine. Thank you. Just keep walking. Boom, okay. You can hide there. Just leave the string out there. Okay, just drop it. Pastor Nathan, thank you. Okay, what I have here is the timeline of your existence as a person created by God. You have a soul, you're going to live forever, and eventually you'll be resurrected with a new life. So this is, pretend for a moment, the span of your life. Your timeline of how long you'll exist. Willow is 11. This is how much of the timeline is ex you've taken up. That's it so far. Your father is considerably older. He's almost 50. That's how much of his life he takes up. Even if you get to Mr. Curry, <laughs> that's how much your life is taken up. So, the fullness of the suffering will endure, and it's real, I'm not saying it's not real, is that much. The fullness of this is how long you have to live in glory, in peace, and in joy, in the fullness of what God is going to provide for you in Christ. That's your salvation. It starts here, and you'll experience it. It's not like every moment here will be trials and tribulations. But I hope you see in perspective, on the timeline of your existence, you will live far more basking in the joy that is yours in Christ. You will be able to rejoice in the Lord, the God of your salvation, looking back on the salvation that he has provided for you and living the whole of your life basking in glory and loving that. Jesus said in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. First Peter, the apostle says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. The picture of the salvation that awaits helps us with the trials and the tribulations that are part of life in this fallen world. Count it all joy, my brothers, James says, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, so there's purpose to this trial and tribulation, this life that we live, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing." Salvation belongs to those who trust in God's promises. Trials and tribulations are part of life in this fallen world. And finally, notice that we can have true joy. This is what Habakkuk says, I will rejoice. I will have joy. 
I can have true joy despite the trials and tribulations of this life. Though the fig tree shouldn't blossom, the fruit in the vines die, the olive fail, fields don't yield any, anything, flocks be cut off, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Happiness or gladness, these are emotions. We're thankful for them. They're a gift from God. But joy, that's a state of soul. That's something, di- that's something different. Joy is not an emotion. It's a demeanor. Third John 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You see what's being said there. It's a deep, I, there's a deep contentment about God's goodness that my children are walking in the truth. That's what the aged John said. Joy is an underlying contentment. It transcends external circumstances or even emotions. In Nehemiah, the prophet said, and do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. There's some, something of substance there. Do not be grieved. Grief is a deep, a deep uh, process we go through that's filled with emotions. And when you're in the midst of that kind of grief, the joy of the Lord will be your strength so you're not swallowed up by it. Joy is a product of God's Holy Spirit working in us. It's from God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. These are not emotions. These are gifts God gives us. And joy is one of them. Joy in the Lord. Paul writes in Romans 15, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. Joy and peace in believing. The righteous will live by faith. That faith will produce joy. So that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope, Paul writes. To some degree, joy is an act of the will. I know that can be cruel to say if you're in great sadness today, so please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you just have to have joy, even though you're feeling real real sorrowful. But I would submit to you that if you trust in Christ, you rest in Christ, no matter how bad you feel right now, whatever you're under, underneath it, there's this this certainty about God having you in his hands. It may be a struggle you're dealing with right now. It's very hard, and you don't know why God's doing what he's doing. Habakkuk wondered that. But there is a joy still in the Lord that knows that you have not fallen outside of his hands. Maybe it hasn't happened the way you wanted it to happen, but you still recognize he is the sovereign one and has purpose for all of this. I don't mean to say that you can conjure up joy with no basis in reality. It's based in reality. It's based in ultimate reality. The reality of our security in Christ. The reality of God's sovereignty over our situation. It's in this light that we can choose joy. This is why James says, count it all joy. Make the choice to count it joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In 1 Peter 1, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, through it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Choosing to respond to life difficult situations with inner contentment and satisfaction does not seem to make sense. But joy is something God gives his children. The Lord is the originator of this joy. The process of learning to respond with joy during times of trials must begin with a conscious awareness that God is at work 
in the world and in your life and in our lives, and that he has a tangible purpose for why he may be uh, sending these experiences our way. Fig tree may not blossom, the fruit may not come on the vines, the olive may fail, no food, the flocks may be cut off, no herds in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. We can respond to life's trials with genuine joy if we know that the Lord has a purpose for difficult times of suffering and trials. Bruckner, who wrote a commentary, summarized it this way. Simply put, biblical joy, as we see in Habakkuk's words to the end of this book, is choosing to respond to external circumstances with inner contentment and satisfaction because we know that God is using these experiences to accomplish his work in and through our lives. I think this is the sentiment behind the Apostle Paul when he says those famous words in Philippians 4. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. It doesn't mean just anything. It means to deal with difficult circumstances in Christ. Habakkuk 3. Habakkuk, the book of Habakkuk. It maintains hope in the face of calamitous circumstances. It provides a lasting resource for survival following the devastation of an enemy attack that Habakkuk and his people will experience. In Brothers and Sisters, our experience of joy in the Lord and his salvation. It is not dependent on our immediate circumstances, nor does it mean the same thing as happiness. I started with a hymn that I was kind of given a hard time to. I want to close with some lines from one that I think will be very pointed to this passage and its application. William Cooper was born in 1731, one of the great hymn writers. His father was actually one of King George II's chaplains, and his mother was related to the poet John Donne. At just the age of six, Cooper's mother died, and he was sent off to a boarding school where he had a terrible time. It was a terrible experience where he was treated badly. He struggled emotionally, psychologically, even physically. By the time he was 18, he started to apprentice in a law firm trying to learn the law trade. After he was about to be examined to practice law, uh, he had a difficult time with depression. He even attempted suicide on a couple different occasions. He was sent to a mental hospital. In those days, they were called asylums. One day at the asylum, Cooper found a Bible on the bench. He opened it up and read it. It turned out to be the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead, which he said showed him the mercy of the Savior. He then knew that he had to go to the book of Romans, so he turned to Romans 3.25. He was acquainted at some level with the word. Then he came to the words, Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation for his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. It was upon reading these words that Cooper said he came to know Christ. He said that's when his conversion happened. Yet, still in his life, he struggled mightily. He had an ultimate answer for things, but he still struggled emotionally, psychologically, even physically. His pastor was John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace. And he saw how fragile an individual Cooper was. And he discipled him and tried to help him. And Cooper spent his whole life struggling, professing faith in Christ, but still struggling, still dealing. It wasn't uh, to be happy in Jesus for him a lot of days. 
A biographer said this about Cooper. There's something about Cooper's sensitive spirit and his familiarity with suffering that led him to create beautiful hymns and poems and hymns that reflect the mercy and faithfulness of what we might call the godness of God. Hymns that reflect our human family. You might be familiar with some of his hymns. God moves in a mysterious way. There is a fountain filled with blood. Oh, for a closer walk with God. We sing all of them here. But the hymn I want to draw your attention to is lesser known but relevant to the text that we are looking at today. Sometimes a Light Surprises by William Cooper. The first stanza, Sometimes a Light Surprises the Child of God who Sings, the Light of One who Rises with Gentle Healing Wings. When comforts are declining, God grants the soul again a season of clear shining to cheer it after rain. The second verse, In holy contemplation with joy, with joy we shall pursue. The theme of God's salvation, and find it ever new. Set free from present sorrow, we cheerfully can say, let the unknown tomorrow bring with it what it may. But the verse I want you to hear finally is the fourth fourth and final verse of this great hymn by Cooper. Though vine and fig tree neither their yearly fruit should bear, though all the field should wither, nor flocks nor herds be there, yet God, the same abiding, Through praise shall tune my voice, for while in love confiding, I cannot but rejoice. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Father, we are ever thankful for the revelation of your holy word. Your word is rich with wisdom and knowledge. We could not understand or navigate this life without your word and spirit. Father, please grant to us the kind of spirit that we see in Habakkuk, that you worked in him over this process of time. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet we will rejoice in you, O Lord. We will take joy in you, the God of our salvation. You, O God, are our strength, You make our feet like the deer's. You make us tread on high places through Christ. Amen.